What's up? It's Min, and welcome back to a new episode of the Quality Under Pressure podcast. And this episode should be out right before the new year, so I want to wish you a happy 2020 quickly. I hope it brings you and your loved ones the best the world has to offer. I've got some really cool concepts and guests booked already for the first part of 2020, so I'm looking forward to the cool content ahead. One thing that I want to do in early 2020 is have some episodes that look back at the 2016 election. This year has a lot happening with the census in the spring and the election in the fall. And I was laying in bed one day and for some reason the 2016 election popped into my head. And, you know, it was a very traumatic day for a lot of people because we put a racist, misogynistic, homophobe in the White House. And that put a lot of people in a dark place. And I want to be fair, too. That's not to say Donald Trump isn't other things. He's not just those three things. But I think we can be fair and honest at the same time. And he just is those things. So the thought I had was I want to talk to people that felt like the world really pivoted on Election Day 2016. So I put out a request on my personal Facebook page and the show's Facebook page, and I got a handful of responses, so I'm in the middle of coordinating those episodes. We'll see how these conversations turn out in early 2020. I should also note that in the post, I said that I want to talk to people who thought the world took a turn for the better, but I'm assuming most of the people I interact with on Facebook don't think that. But a sort of pro-Trump conversation is something that I still would like to do. But moving on in next week's episode, we talk with Robbie and Caitlin about donuts and minimalism, not because they're causally related, but because they're interested in both topics as separate topics. I know Robbie from middle school, but we didn't become like actual hangout buddies until a handful of years ago when Robbie got me back into basketball. I've been a fan of basketball since the fourth grade, but I got lazy in my mid-twenties and Robbie's the one that got me back in the ball when he asked me to be on his team. Caitlin is his fiance, and she's getting her PhD in ecology. After they get married in Minnesota, they're moving out to the Baltimore area, so I wanted to make sure I got an episode with Robbie and Caitlin before their big move. In this episode, we expand on their favorite donut spots around the Twin Cities, how they utilize minimalism in their lives, and Caitlin also shared some of the work she's been doing as she pursues her PhD. That episode will be out next week, but in today's episode, I spoke with Sarah and Tyler. I know both of them from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, where we all got our master's degree. Sarah and I met in our qualitative methods class, which is an awesome class for future Humphrey students. And Tyler and I met through friends at school at a party. They're both super thoughtful, outgoing, and amazing people. Our topic of the day was living abroad and international development. We started our conversation talking about some of the biggest challenges of living abroad. We start with some of the obvious items like language barriers and cultural differences. And then when we moved on to international development, we talked about the tensions between what the funders want when they send money abroad and what communities want and how the workers in the middle deal with that and kind of also how evaluations play into all of this. But I think one of my favorite parts of the conversation is when we tease out the white savior complex because we all agree that it's a thing, but we took it from a binary conversation to really looking at the gradations of the white savior complex and when it's maybe okay or needed. So check out this episode and I hope you like it because I think it turned out very nicely because 
all these conversations are mostly freestyle and they come from a place of curiosity, but they don't always produce really compelling content. It may be funny. It may be other things, but it's not always super compelling or interesting, I guess. But this one turned out really nicely, in my opinion. Welcome to the Quality Under Pressure podcast, a podcast that reminds you that a conversation is still a great thing. Changing it up a little bit. Uh, I want to welcome to studio Sarah and Tyler. I know both of you guys from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, where we all got our masters. Tyler, we never had classes together, though. No, unfortunately, we didn't. They yeah. keep us MDPs kind of in the cellar a little bit. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But we did meet at a few parties, and like Sarah was like, "You want Tyler to come?" I'm like, yeah, dude's been so <laughs> super friendly, and but we also had different focuses, though, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you yeah. guys align a lot closer than than I did. Yeah, the two of uh, Tyler and I both align because we both had a focus in human rights and international development, and I actually don't think that. Tyler and I had any classes, even though we both oh, wow. focused on that. Maybe it was one. I can't remember one. I, I can't remember either. So. Yeah. We just like, had <laughs> that passion. The- and so we just were drawn to be friends. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. But you guys both had an international lens. Are we all masters of, oh, well, you said MDP. Mm-hmm. But are you, I forget, are you an MPP? Yes. Okay. I, I masters am. of public policy. Yeah. Yep. And Tyler's a master's of development practice. Yeah. But, yeah. but Sarah always had, you know, she, it was cool. She had her own little groups, you know, like the human rights kind I of did. focus area in there. Yep. We were both on IPID. So that was kind of the, she was the MPP representative on that. Yeah. A lot of acronyms in grad school. Yeah. I know. You know? People yeah. never knew what my degree program was at Humphrey, which I thought was very interesting and a, a real testament that my degree was very interdisciplinary and touched a lot of That's different really things. Cool. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of acronyms in like the government or the oh. like the public sphere too that yeah. you kind of have to get used to. Yeah, I just don't. I feel like when you go out there and you tell people I have an MPP, it doesn't always click, right? No. Yeah, I think even when you say, "Oh, I have a master's of public policy," you have to define it because not sure. everyone knows what that means. And even when I say, "Oh, if you want to work in government, nonprofits," sometimes a lot of people automatically assume that you want to run for office. That's what I always get to. And I'm like. Eh. Not so much. Like, I, I would prefer not to run for office, yep. but if that is eventually my path, that would be in, an interesting one in my future. Exactly. But it's not something I'm seeking right now. No, I don't know if I ever would want to. But like you said, if it calls, like right. people like really like push you to do it, mm-hmm. they're like, you're the right person for this job. Like, yeah. Okay, maybe. Like, right. calm down. I, see, and I think that's funny because I have to say, being an MDP, no one knows what that is. Uh, People that are in international not. development sometimes don't know what that is. So, so I have to be like, well, it's like an MPP to the to the fact where after two years, my mom just carried around a little card that she could read off. Yeah. If I asked her right now and called her up what my degree is, it's a fifty fifty shot if she would get the get the acronym right. I think. Yeah. So. Oh, my yeah. mom would have no idea. <laughs> yeah, my mom does the same thing too when she tells her friends like she went to grad school. They're like, oh, what oh do good, you do? good for her. Like, oh, you did something. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, and. Sarah and I know we, each other. We had, I think we actually still only had one class together. Yeah. We took qualitative methods, which was yeah. a great With class. Greta. Yes. With, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Cody, who was another guest mm-hmm. of podcast, was in our group. Yep. Ooh. So. so just going, all right. Good. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like there's no way we weren't, we were not going to like each other because you are just so, so warm and Aww. outgoing and caring. Thank and you. she just kind of was the linchpin of our group. Like, let's let's do this on Thursday. Is everyone free? Yes, we are. <laughs> I think she's just a linchpin in general. Yes, in life. Okay, cool. So before we get into the topic of the day, which is going to be huge and awesome, I think, we do the speed round questions. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> uh, do you have a big goal for 2020? 
I want to be, I want to make my home more environmentally friendly. So cool. like think about my waste, my food waste, my plastic waste. Mm-hmm. Nice. Like I want to get in a better routine, whether that's working out or just, you know, just understanding like my work-life balance, yep. everything like that. Great. Uh, are you a morning person or a night person? Morning. 100% morning. Night for me. Yeah, I think I'm night still. Uh, wheat or white bread? Neither. I don't like bread. Very oh, much. wheat for me. Wheat. Uh, yeah, just kind of the same. I don't know. I feel like I'm a little healthier. Probably not. <laughs> uh, favorite junk food? Cheddar popcorn. Oh, nice. Yeah, hundred percent. Potato chips and cottage cheese. Cottage together? cheese. Yeah, Wait. yeah, it's together. My sister got me on it. It's like that's the dip that you use. Oh, and oh weird. Yeah, do you put anything in it? No, it's just cottage cheese and like ruffled potato chips because you know the chip needs to like handle the yeah. weight of the curd. Yeah, that's know? true. But is it more like a like a chive dip of some kind? Does it like remind you of that or no? I mean, you, like you, if it helps dip? you, Sarah, you can picture whatever you want. But <laughs> it's basically just cottage cheese and potato chips. Oh, and these are that like original so flavor potato chips. Yeah, just like yeah. I mean, I could mix it up. I haven't gotten to that point yet. I just like the original. Nice. You know, I know. Good for you. <laughs> uh, who is one person you would love to meet? Mm. Ooh. That's oh, such man. a hard I want to hear this one from you guys. Oh, one person I want to meet. It'd be interesting to hear this from my grad school friends. Okay, I'll, I'll go. So this yeah, to, go. to keep with the topic you. a little bit, I, I want to be in a room with just Jeffrey Sachs and William Easterly. Uh-huh. Oh, I've heard and that just, from you And before. just take <laughs> off the, the cuffs and see who, who wins in that. Awesome. Instead <laughs> of a Twitter fight, a fight in real life. A real, a real life fight. <laughs> I, my bets would definitely be on William Easterly. I feel like he has a really mean left hook. Best, but yeah. yeah. Good. How about you, Sarah? Uh, I, you can skip. Uh, I feel like I can just say someone like really generic, you know, like Michelle Obama would nice. be great or yeah. Barack would. I don't know. Just the Obamas. Or, or any of the Obamas. Uh, the Ob- can we have just the, Obama. the Obamas? They would That's be fine. fun. I don't know. Yeah. That's fine. We'll say the Obamas. The Obamas. Uh, favorite Marvel superhero? Ooh. I. I'm a little bit Cap. I'm I'm a, nice. I'm a big Cap fan. Okay, so I haven't seen all of the Marvel movies, That's fine. Me but I would say Captain America just because I like Chris Evans. Yeah, so we agree. I said Cap. We, too. Yeah, yeah, we agree. But my reason is because Chris Evans is yep. hot. <laughs> that's, that's that's a valid point. I'm yeah. not going to argue with you. On yeah, that I one. can't argue against that either. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what is the best quality in a leader? <sighs> Listening. Listen, oh, listen. that's good. That's really good. Yeah. Or empathy. Mm, that's yeah. really good. That's actually really good. Sarah might win, actually. Oh, <laughs> I, don't mm. I don't know. I don't know. What is super boring to you? Oh, okay. go ahead, Sarah. This is a hot take. Baseball. Oh, my heart. <laughs> I no. know. I, Not sorry. A hot take. I know your heart is breaking. <laughs> Not a hot take. Baseball is so boring. Okay? So boring. Like, um, I was, was at a Twins game this past summer, and they hit three. With me? I, or is that I, another one? I don't. I can't remember. We went to it, one together. I know, but I can't remember if you were there. So they hit three um, home runs in a row, and that was like the most exciting I'd ever seen a baseball game get in my entire life. That's that is fair. <laughs> Luckily, the Twins are. They hit the most home runs this yeah. year. So yeah, yeah. it was so a good time fireworks. to. They yeah, spiced I was it up. like, why aren't there always fireworks? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> fair. Every 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 out. Every out fireworks. <laughs> like I love. 
um, going to Timberwolves games because mm. it's like a show, right? There's light yeah. shows. Oh, yeah. Even if they lose, it's fun. There's an MC. It's fun. Mm-hmm. So now you're Baseball, losing me. Boring. Mm. Baseball, boring, but I'm a purist. So mm. like when like they take like breaks every three minutes and they're like, Welcome to the dance team. I'm like, come on, yeah. play basketball. Yeah, I can't I no, can't I do I, that. <laughs> I'm a purist. I think it's I think baseball's only good when you grow up playing baseball. Mm. Oh, you know, okay. like I my dad was my coach. Okay. Um, you know, I just but like I can't watch I, I can watch my team. I can't just turn on a random baseball. It'll be hard for me sometimes. So I, I feel that. Okay. For me, it'd be like e news. Like I can't get what? into. Yeah. I, <laughs> oh well, my like, god. I know. Like there is. So there's drama, which I'll admit can be fun. Like you know. But like I remember uh, my girlfriend was there's something where somebody was like arguing like some makeup person on YouTube and stuff, and they just kept on talking. Like I don't. I, this is I, this just my eyes glazed over, and I just couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. Oh my god! I can't believe you think e news is boring. That's all right. Like. <laughs> Maybe the next time I go to a baseball game, I should be watching E! News. <laughs> I love that idea with both of you guys, though. Good, I totally good. agree. Celebrity, uh, like, pop culture. Yeah, like, I just, I, I can't. There, I mean, there's some stuff, like, where the drama, ooh, like, that's scandalous, you know, kind of stuff. <laughs> but, like, but like I, the mundane nature of some of this stuff where they make, like, coverage out of nothing. Yes. At least I feel like I'm learning something when they do that in, like, CNN. But, like, well, at least right now, it's... It's award season, so uh, you've got all the buzz happening about what who's going to be. That mm-hmm. almost makes it worse Wait, uh, sometimes, though. Not- I love when, like, on the red carpet. I think Taylor Swift had this last year. Like, oh, like, who are you wearing, and who are you going to go home with? She's like, what the hell kind of question is that? Like, <laughs> what is that? What do you mean? Who am I going home with? Even the T Swift. I was just like, good, good. That made me. I, I think so. I I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan, but she's grown on me hard. Just because outside like of music, Taylor. she's just doing mm-hmm. so much more and more. So, mm-hmm. uh, one final question: If you could have any superpower, what would it be? The ability to fly. Nice. Super speed. Super Absolutely. speed and fly. Nice. Because it's like it's all the fun of flying, but it's on the ground and you can just get anywhere. You yeah. Know, I'd never be late. You know. Oh, you want to go to you want to go to Iceland? Well, guess what? Actually, that one wouldn't be as good. But you know, London, just go the long way. You know, go yeah. through the long through, way. Yeah, you know. Or could you be like? Because you run across the water like Dash oh, absolutely. and the Incredibles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Why stop there? You know, you might as well fly too almost, you know? Nice. Yeah. Nice. I've, I've thought a lot about this, man. You guys are definitely. Things that keep me up at night. <laughs> you guys are definitely international people. I just like, I just want to uh, be able to get from point A to point B so as fast speed. as I can. So yeah. super speed. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a perfect segue into the topic of the day. Am I correct if I say it's living abroad? Yeah. Right. Living abroad. All right. Well, let's start with that. Uh, how about you? We'll start with you, Sierra. Like, where did you, how many different places have you lived abroad? And when we say lived abroad, is there like a time marker that we have to like fit into? Like, okay, I went there for two months. Are you actually living abroad at two months? I, I think that's a valid question. And yeah. I, I'll leave that definition up to the individual. But I would say if if at any point you had to buy something nice for your house when you are abroad yeah. to make it feel more homey or because you needed it to live a functioning life i would say that you lived abroad. And even before that get a house yeah mm-hmm. yeah get a house if you invested in like a permanent residence if you invested in a re- well even i would say if you had a host family if you had to buy something in order for your life to function and you bought it there mm-hmm. like if you had to buy a basket to put your dirty clothes. I don't know. Something. Yep. I would say that. But I, I would say maybe like two months or two months. more. Nice. So where have you lived abroad? Yeah. And where were, uh, how long were you there? Okay. So I first lived abroad in Liberia, West Africa. Unconventional place. Uh, but I was in the Peace Corps. 
So I lived there for about two months in the 2014 Ebola crisis. Okay. And then I got oh, sent wow. home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a really rough time in my life. And then I waited in the States for about nine months to get replaced. And then I did my full Peace Corps service for, if you don't know, is a little over two years okay. in Tanzania, East Africa. That one I know. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. So, <laughs> so that didn't right. count towards your the two years. Well, so you- it, I was in training and the ah, trainings are okay. very different in each country. Course, so in Liberia, I was doing cultural training. I was being taught how to be an, a teacher. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Tanzania, they did some similar trainings, you know, like I also was being a teacher there. Cool. And so I learned a few things that were about the same. There are some generic Peace Corps safety trainings that are mm-hmm. the same, but in Tanzania, I had to learn Swahili, and so that mm-hmm. took up much more of our cultural training yeah. than in Liberia, where they spoke English. They do speak a dialect of English, so it is not like English you would hear in the States or even in Britain. Right, um, right, <laughs> right. It, So you hear it, and you're like, are you sure this is English? <laughs> but... It's a dialect of English um, yes. that you definitely have to get used to, but it, it requires a lot less language and definitely intensive training. Before we move to Tyler, how long did it take you to get used to that dialect before, it, like you said, like you don't have that reaction anymore and you're like, yeah. okay, like, yeah, I have to I have to listen more attentively, but I totally get what they're saying now. I don't think I ever got to that okay. point. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I was there for two months and I think that it, it, it got easier to hear people mm-hmm. and understand what they were saying, but it still took quite a few seconds of processing. Whereas I can imagine if I had been there for a year, it would take just less time for my brain to process. Yep, that makes sense. Tyler, living abroad? Yeah, now Sarah takes the cake on that. I, I wasn't in the Peace Corps. So yeah. my my uh, living abroad experience has been in grad school, uh, living in Belize for oh, cool. just over two months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've worked in Peru off and on, but never staying there for longer than two weeks at a time. Okay. So I, I guess that's kind of a different. So like to Sarah's point, I agree. I would never say I lived in Peru because I have never had those things. Like you never bought furniture to furnish your house. You mm-hmm. never, you know, had that mentality, but, uh, but you've been there off and on. So that's, yeah. that's, a, I mean, we might not be able to say you live there, mm. but it's very different than I went there once. I experienced mm-hmm. it. I came back. You went off and yeah. on. I would also say though, that you worked in Peru. Yeah. And I, you can say that it wasn't just a vacation no, or no. like a volunteering trip that you never went back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Cause when, you know, I get asked the question, maybe where have you can like studied abroad yeah. at or anything like that? I mean, I've spent two and a half weeks in Czech Republic, month in Guyana, month in New Zealand. Um, but I, I put those at a different tier than mm. the Peru and the Belize just because I think, yep. you know, you are more, you have a routine. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And then how did you guys choose, like out of everywhere you could go in the world, how did you guys fall into these geographic locations? Uh, when I was applying for Peace Corps in 2013, they've like redone their application process since, but you had to choose a continent that you mm. wanted to go to. And I chose Africa as the stereotypical white girl here. <laughs> but I, I just always knew that that's a place that I wanted to go. Yeah. So I chose Africa. I did not choose the specific countries. Okay. But I would say that I I loved both of my experiences there. And Could you have chosen the so specific So now country? when you apply to Peace Corps, you can choose a specific country. Mm, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. And it's very interesting. I I have conflicting ideas about it because one there there's this list of 
Peace Corps, I don't even know what to call it, like attributes. So by signing up for Peace Corps, you agree to all of these attributes. And one of them is that you agree to go where you're needed. Mm-hmm. And so by yeah. choosing, like, I mean, you're still going where you're needed because they post it like a job, right? So they post, they need a math teacher in Kenya or wherever. And then you sign up for that specific one. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, there's going to be like biases that come into play. Yeah. If you can choose your own, like you'll be self-selecting and right. everyone wants, everyone probably wants to go to the same places. Yeah. So the distribution gets a little messed up exactly. that way. Like who's going to go to Liberia? I had heard <laughs> of it, but I had, I didn't know much about it mm-hmm. before I went there. Yeah. How about you, Tyler? How did you end up in that region of the world? Yeah. So uh, at least with the Belize, similar, at least from the grad school program, is there's different kind of consulting projects for MDPs to do where you serve a field practicum. So I believe our year was one in Ghana. Um, one in Nigeria that got moved to Ghana. There was one in Kenya. Yeah, there, oh, yep, there's one in Kenya. Nice. Yeah, there's one. Okay, so the one in Nigeria got moved to, to Ghana. Then there's one in Kenya for one acre. And then there was one in uh, Colombia and then one in Belize. Nice. So depending on the geographic scope and your interest level, you signed up and kind of did a tiered ranking of which one you'd like to do. For cool. me, I we worked with the Maya people in economic development and basically – the Maya people had lost their ancestral lands. They recently won their land back, so they oh, weren't wow. viewed by the government as squatters. And they're just doing these really cool things, working between what's a what's the mixture of like a subsistence economy, where we you know rely on our traditional governance structure for ownership, land, you know, and things like that, but also what's a market approach look like this where we have all this cacao and people and we want the money for us to help yeah. us with our ways of life. So I thought that was like, that's really dope. Like I want to get in there and like see what and learn about that and see, you know, however I could be helpful. So, so that's why that was, was number lucky. one. Yeah, it was because I, I mean, my background kind of Peru, what led me there is I worked with the Mahuna people there and we led in kind of the whole premise was based on something called biocultural innovation, which basically means that the traditional sense of innovation is usually a Western concept yeah. of that something has to be industrialized, something has to be, but these technologies, innovations, whatever you want to call it, can be rooted in culture and been going mm-hmm. on and, and progress. You know, and that's why indigenous cultures have uh, fared better to like the damages caused by climate change. And that's kind of that rooted between culture and biology and, and things like that. That's so. really cool. Well, and I, I want to establish too, I did live abroad once, so nice, I'm not man. coming into this totally blind. Uh, I spent a year in South Korea right after Ooh. undergrad. Mm-hmm. So hopefully like as we talk, like I can sort of have at least yeah. a sense of what you guys went through. Like mine was obviously like in South Korea, like a much more developed nation. And like, I mean, I had a a cozy apartment mm-hmm. and all like all of that was set up for me. So I think I was going into a very different circumstance, but like some of the things were like, you know, you're like, Oh, I like, I just want a cheeseburger and I don't, and I don't know how to get there necessarily when I like first land and like mm-hmm. try to establish myself, like some of that stuff, like I went through too. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, as we get deeper in our conversation, hopefully some, we can talk about some of those Man, things. I did know that you lived abroad. So that's why I thought this was a great oh, topic for all you. three of us. Bump said spike for even for me too. <laughs> how old were you guys when you guys were living abroad? I was 23 in Liberia and then 24 to 26 in Tanzania. Okay. See, celebrated my 24th birthday in Belize and working off and on since 22 okay. in Peru, if I, my years are right. <laughs> I know. I might, might be wrong now that I'm I, I had 20s. <laughs> it was so rough that. 20s. Rough okay. that, yeah. Okay. That's Early 20s, right? Yeah. 
Um, and so I think where we want to shift to first is, should we talk about some of the biggest challenges about living abroad? I think that's what I saw in the show notes first. Yeah. Do you want to start us off, Sarah? Like, yeah. What's the biggest thing that comes to your mind? I would say the biggest challenge is language. And, mm-hmm. and anyone who doesn't say that is, is fooling themselves. Unless you're mm-hmm. very fluent and have spent years speaking with someone who knows the language and the dialect. And in Tanzania, I spent like two and a half months, so about uh, 10 weeks actually, uh, learning Swahili. And my level was so low. It was probably, I was about three or four years old speaking yeah. level. Mm. And when I went to my village that I lived in, the dialect was so different. I felt like I was relearning everything. I I was like, did I actually just spend the last <laughs> 10 weeks learning Sahila? Because I feel like I didn't. And so language is just the number one barrier. Everyone has a different dialect, just like in the U.S. You have that in other countries. In Minnesota, we don't say y'all, et cetera, things like that. So, I do. I mean, if you, I love that term. You say y'all, man, if yeah. you want. But I would say language is number one. The number two thing I would say is just cultural nuances that you don't understand. Yes. I went oh, to yeah. a bunch of different weddings, and I just really, really didn't understand the meaning behind them, what they were doing. And then I thought back of weddings in the U.S., and I was like, how silly it must be to foreign the people from that didn't grow up in American culture that we walk down an aisle and then meet like, you know, what does that mean? Like, why do we do that? And I was just thinking the same thing when I was watching weddings. It's like, they just, they walk into a room together and then they walk out and then they get in a car and I'm like, where do they go? (laughs) Is that the whole wedding? I don't know. What did you see in a Tanzanian wedding that made you like, where that clicked for you? I think it was, so there, I was on the island of Zanzibar, and it, it's an entirely Muslim island. And so the culture there is even more different than the culture of mainland oh. Tanzania. So I can't speak to other weddings sure. that might happen throughout the mainland, especially Christian weddings in Tanzania. But mm. Muslim weddings on Zanzibar, it, everything was very separated by gender. So mm. when I would go, I would spend all day with the females and the mamas, like cooking all day. And then the bride would be in a room on a bed and she would just be sitting there like full makeup, a beautiful gown. It was never a white gown. Yeah. It was always brightly colored. Mm-hmm. And people would go into the room and take pictures with her and then they would leave and then they would eat. And then the husband to be would come into that room that she was in and then they would have their like first looks yeah. and then they would do a prayer Ooh. and then they would leave and that's all that happened from my point of view. Okay. <laughs> um, and there was her dance. Was it the reception after that or what? There, there was a reception afterwards, but the bride and groom were not there. Really? Fun. Huh. But they, yeah, who needs them, right? Maybe, yeah. they, maybe they came back. I don't, I really don't know. Yeah. I, it's baffled me to this day. And I asked so many people about it and I just fully did not understand and so I just think that culture is number two of That's the challenges huge. because mm, there's just yeah. things that you're just never going to understand. Even living in the culture among the people, you didn't grow up there. Yeah. So you don't know. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Before we, I, I want to ask you the same question, mm. but like that second one, like I, I didn't even think about that. But I remember when I was in South Korea and I had the advantage of I had intermediate like South Korean language skills mm-hmm. because my parents are South Korean. And so I grew up with with an mm-hmm. American and South Korean culture. Yeah. But even with that, 
I was equipped with that, but I would still go over and I was still kind of walking on eggshells because mm-hmm. I think people mm-hmm. like us are so aware of what culture means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think that uh, the average person thinks about that in their daily life. But when we go over there, we want to respect that so yeah. badly. So I was just like, okay, like definitely bow. But like anytime you're like, oh, like I heard about this once, but I'm not, I'm not really like caught up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do I do in this moment? And, that gave me so much anxiety. Like, I just didn't want to offend anyone while yeah. I was there. Mm-hmm. How about you, Tyler? What were some of the biggest challenges for you? Well, I think Sarah hit the, the big two yep. there, right? Yep. But just to add another one in there, I think, is just maybe your positionality. Mm. Is yeah. I think you, you go into, you know, a place and you just, you're not used to understanding that before even your mouth opens, there's going to be a lot of preconceptions for good or bad yep. about, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, and how you're going to do it. And I would say, you know, a big deal with that is like when I'm working in northern Peru there, you know, I'm the six foot two pelirrojo white guy yeah. there, you know. And and I, I think that whole route is what got me into international development, seeing that, you know, there there is a role that can play where you're supporting, you know, and blah, 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 whatever. But I, I think understanding that the role, and unfortunately gender plays too, mm-hmm. yeah. Um which uh, I'll pass it off to Sarah later if we if we get into that because there's just you know for fortunately or unfortunately that that does play a, a role depending on where you travel but yeah I think that positionality is just a huge huge piece yeah that's huge yeah like you said fortunately or unfortunately it can go either way but you have to be aware of it at least yeah I mean I just a little a story there is I mean, we just landed in Belize and we didn't have any sort of Sims cards or anything and there was only one bus that would get us out of mm-hmm. there and we were just like isolated on, gosh, we can't be here. We needed to catch up with someone else. And just one of the dumbest things I did is I was just very impulsive and wanted to try to get this. And there's one store that was open and I was talking. And luckily in Belize, there's not that language barrier because it's it's one of the few um, English speaking in Central and South America, actually English, Belize and Guyana, ironically, both I've traveled there. But I mean, I, so my uh, partner and good friend of mine, it was hustling behind me and I, I made all these things like, okay, we need to get here. And someone said they'd give us a ride. And rightfully so I got yelled at afterwards because you know, I didn't, I didn't consider the safety thing. I had an internal timeline on that. And that was such like male privilege in a situation where you're, we're going into there where, you know, my safety concerns, you know, I, I remember weighing the safety concerns, but like, ah, we need to do this right now. Uh-huh. And like, um, I, I've never made that mistake again. And I, that, that's just generically right with anything. But I think that's amplified more when you need to put on different lenses to mm-hmm. things, um, for safety. And I hope we get into safety later. Cause I have some bits on that, but yeah. Or I just want to touch, I bet what was going through your mind too, is a Western version of time. Exactly. And that's yeah. just like such a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In America, you're paid by the hour. Time is money. That is mm-hmm. our philosophy. But in other cultures where you're not, you're paid monthly or, you know, the government controls your pay Mm -hmm. and you don't know when it's coming or how often it's coming. You know, you have an annual salary, but that's about it. You're not as invested in time as money. You're Mm -hmm. not, you know, you come in whenever you wake up or greetings are such a huge part of some communities where Mm -hmm. it's more important to greet whoever you see on your way to work because that will make you a successful employee versus rushing to work Mm -hmm. to do your actual work you know like relationship building that's huge and it's better to have in some cultures a good relationship with someone 
than to physically be on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to speak on that in like a Korean culture context too, like greetings, like bowing. Yeah, that's so important. So like, if you don't greet someone as they walk by, or like someone that you know at least, mm-hmm. then that's a sign of disrespect. So yep. like, I think that's really huge because I have. Maybe it is my Korean background, but sometimes I have trouble with that too. Where like when I see someone in the hallway and I'm walking by them, it doesn't even. I don't even have to say hi to them out loud. It just at least like smile. I'll, I'll yeah. look at them. I'll smile. Mm-hmm. Just make sure like we acknowledge each other because mm-hmm. I have to look at them anyway because we might run into each other otherwise. I have yeah. to look at you, mm-hmm. right? So I'll make sure I'll like greet them. But then like I just see some people like look at me and then just like there's there's nothing behind the look yeah mm-hmm. and i'm just like am i that w- i just feel like am i that worthless and maybe mm-hmm. that is my korean background but it's cool to hear other cultures well i i hate that about america that's one of my least favorite things about american culture mm. i think is is that, yeah. that i think I, it's kind of a self selfishness of your yeah. perceival i mean like i mean we're just a very individualistic culture you know and mm-hmm. i and I, what pains me to see is sometimes that's emulated in how to do business elsewhere and i've noticed like just the business oh, yeah. things and i and i don't think our work culture is is healthy to emulate success sometimes yeah. like that, and I think that feeds into exactly where the personal relationships. And I think there's areas, there's different sectors that have adapted that. But you know, yeah, my my buddy lives in Germany, and I, you know, uh, it's you know, your work is built on why would you need extra hours to work? <laughs> you should be efficient with what you're doing. Yes. And, you know, I mean, yes. I just want to touch on one more thing that Tyler Please. said, and that's about gender. And it's it's really not something that anyone thinks about. I would say even in America. I notice I don't notice my gender as often as I noticed it in Tanzania and Liberia. In both countries, I was proposed to so many times for marriage. Yes, for marriage. <laughs> okay. Like, how so, many boyfriends did you have? I had zero boyfriends at the time. <laughs> I wish. No, they they just you know saw a white lady and they sure. were like, oh. I want to marry her. And I the would literal sense of shot. There. I would <laughs> always respond like, you don't even know my name. Yeah, yeah. And you're asking me to marry you. Are you serious? Yeah. And then they would feel bad. And I'd be like, I'm sorry. What's your name? <laughs> and then I'm like, that doesn't sound that much different uh, than American bar <laughs> setting, though. Like when oh, guys that's do true. that. Oh. That's so true. <laughs> like, hey, hey can, can I, I get I... your number? Like, oh, you want to ask me for my name first? Right. Oh, 100%. <laughs> the, no, you're right, man. That's totally like bar culture. Yeah. I mean, it's a little less stakes. Like, they're not asking you to marry you, but they are asking conceivably for to yep. spend time with them, a date, or for sure to go home or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> there's so many ways. Uh, so I heard. We want to go down the safety path. There's that, again, I think we could talk about greetings and like how that affects oh, us. Because yeah. even like when I call someplace, like a business, and they just go, hello, I'm like, am <laughs> I calling the right place? So like how Americans like do yeah. that too. Like yeah. that's weird to me. We could talk about gender. Uh, but I, do, I definitely do want to loop around to safety. I, in my show notes I have next, you want to talk about how your intersectionality, positionality within a Muslim country. If we talk about that, do you think we'll hit some of these other spokes too? Yeah, for sure. And I think we'll definitely hit on safety Safety. or Mm. what my family back home perceives. Yeah, that's that's kind of the big thing I wanted to get on too, actually. Okay. So can you unpack a little bit? Like, so you went over there and you were, you're a white woman from America Mm -hmm. in a predominantly Muslim country. What does that look like? What does that mean? My first couple of weeks there were really hard Mostly I was just getting my footing and like I mentioned earlier, relearning the dialect of Swahili. So that took a lot of mental energy. 
And there was uh, actually a election going on at the time that I first got to my uh, village that I was going to spend my full two years in. And so Peace Corps decided to pull us off the island for the election just because there was some very minor unrest. It was it wasn't it wasn't very much, but it was just a few instances of violence. And so we went off the island of Zanzibar for about two weeks. And then when I came back, I decided that I was going to wear a hijab because my community kept asking me to wear one. Okay. And I was convinced that it was going to make everything better. And let mm. me tell you, it did. Oh. There, I had a lot of like internal ethical back and forth about whether or not to wear a hijab, whether or not that was cultural appropriation, mm. whether I don't. What, I, what was I your was, mindset before you left? Like, before I left, I was so miserable. I, I was doing greetings like we were just talking about and people weren't greeting me back. Yeah. They were, so I also want to just give you some like a little context here, like 20 seconds. But on Zanzibar, there is so much volunteerism. So mm. people who come in for a week, week and a half, do a short-term volunteering project and leave. Okay. And those individuals often don't have any cultural training. So they're wearing short shorts. They're oh, wow, wearing yeah. tank tops and... It, for people who don't know what a Muslim village looks like, everyone's fully covered. They have a hijab. They're wearing long skirts. Modesty is very important to them. And even though I felt like I was dressing modestly without a hijab, I was wearing long skirts. I was wearing tops that covered my elbows, even though it was 100 degrees. <laughs> um, I still didn't feel that my community was welcoming me the way I had in my mind. Even after you accepted the hijab? No, before that. Ah, okay. okay before okay. that. When I did put on a hijab, I think my community felt that I was trying to become a member of the community. Mm -hmm. And so they saw that as a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. They saw that as a sign that I was planning to stay for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so it really helped me. And as soon as I put that on, everyone greeted me. People stop me and they're like, oh, I see that you're wearing a job. Thank you yeah. for being modest. Thank you for agreeing to be part of our culture. Yeah. And so that was just very touching. And all of my sort of ethical back and forth about whether or not to wear it went away because everyone was asking me to. Everyone was treating mm -hmm. me so nicely. And that's what I was starving for. Mm. That's yeah. so great, Sarah. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean that's, that's why... I think that's so great because there you were in that gray area, right? Where yeah. there's you could read all these texts that say do that. There could be all these texts that say no. And mm -hmm. I think that's what's great is you you went you went with it. It was what's right. That's what the people asked for. Yeah. And and if someone like not to use that as an example, but other people could look back on that and say like, oh well, that's not how you do. But you know, you there's the areas of gray that we operate. There's very little that yes yeah. or no. And I think that is just an amazing example of just mm -hmm. considering the community. And that's just that's yeah. really great. Yeah, I, I mean the the math that you did in real time, mm -hmm. that's really great. In retrospect, it sounded like that you feel like that was the right decision. In retrospect. It, yeah. Yep, it definitely was in retrospect the, the right decision. And I had a very successful two-year service because I adopted that mm -hmm. so early on. And then, like, let's just do a thought experiment. If yeah. you were like, no, I'm from the West, and this to me is like, you know, there's that, that perspective that this is oppression mm -hmm. on women too. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you drew a hard line and you chose to do it that way. What, have, what would that have been like? I think it w definitely would have been harder. I, I, I can't really say right, too much, right. but I, I would just say I want to touch on one thing that you said is that 
by wearing a hijab that that's a form of oppression and I disagree. Mm. I think in some contexts, 100% it's oppression. If you're looking at women in Saudi Arabia who get beaten, who, you know, physically assaulted because they're not wearing one and they don't want to, I agree. That's that's oppression. But if you wear one voluntarily, if if that's part of your culture and you want to wear one, Mm -hmm. I don't see how that's oppression. Mm -hmm. I want to wear this sweater that I'm wearing today. And so I put it on and that's not oppression. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to make that distinction that not all Muslim women who wear a hijab are doing it because they're forced to. They do it because it's part of their culture and that's important to them. And so I just... I just yeah. wanted to voice that. Well, well yeah, because sure. it, it can be a slippery slope to yeah. when you're saying, well, this is what people actually want. When, you know, when right. you have institutions that exist that say, well, this is what they need. Well, why, how do you know that? Well, we just do. And right. that and that has happened for so long from especially the West. And, and, yeah, yeah, and why is my Western view of what a female is supposed to be and the choices they are free to make, why why is that the right way? And why why am I saying that? this choice is right and this choice is wrong and this choice is free of oppression and this choice means that you're being oppressed. Yeah, because I think people people need to make their own decisions and that's what loops around to the main topic is the one way to do that is that's why I think everyone should travel to mm. see those differences, yeah. to see those things and then they can make it themselves. And Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. I mean, just my time in South Korea, it just shaped who I am in my adult life too. Mm-hmm. So 100%. I totally agree. Is there Was there ever a moment, I do want to touch back on like the safety topic too. Yeah. What was like the most unsafe you ever felt there? Mm, I don't really know. I don't That's know. great. I, they, I mean, I love that. I love yeah. that you, there's not like, oh, this one time. No, oh. I can't think of a specific time that I felt unsafe. Peace Corps does a really good job, I think, of setting you up for success and teaching you different safety tricks. Mm-hmm. They teach you areas of town where you're not supposed to carry a bag because motorcyclists are known to snatch them mm. off of people. Mm-hmm. And by knowing that information before you go anywhere, you just don't bring a bag. You put things in your pockets. Mm-hmm. You wear like a belt that goes around your body and mm-hmm. put stuff in that mm-hmm. travel belt or whatever it is. You put things in your shoe. And you're just prepared for it so you don't feel unsafe. Other volunteers that had had safety concerns, I think they were unexpected. They were in an area of town that they always went to and and always felt safe. And so maybe they loosened Mm. up on their safety procedures a little bit. I can't say that that's always true. Oh, what do you call it? Like crime where crimes just. Well, either way, like it's yeah, just like it just you happens. Can't, you can't unavoid it. That's, yes, that's what so, I was going to say. So yeah, I mean, even crimes of circumstance. Crimes of circumstance. That's oh. what I was trying to think of. Yes. So and and those you can't foresee. You just happen to be looking away for two seconds, and it happens. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I mean, say, you have to do your best to just mitigate. Like right. you can't mitigate a hundred percent. I do think too. Like as over t- over time. If the more safety you do experience, the more blasé that you can get to. Yeah. So that yeah. helps you. Yes. Not mitigate things. That's so. what I was trying to say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. How, but how about then? How about you, Tyler? Were there times where you felt unsafe? You know, I really, really no. Comparatively, good. Um, I and I feel like this is something that you, you need to. I think Sarah touched on a little bit. Is you need to be just cognizant mm-hmm. of where you are. But I, I don't think that differentiates between my time in the states. You know, wherever. Right. Um, yeah. So you know, I know Sarah wanted to get in this. So I, I'll, I'll cast the the fishing line a little bit. Is so when I was in Belize, 
Um, and this, I mean, this is a tragic story that goes a little, I mean, it's crime of circumstance to a very like terrible degree, but we, so as we were leaving kind of our, we stayed in the Southern part of Belize, which is very different than most of the part of Belize. Oh, it's, wow. it's very close to Guatemala and the, the Southern, Southern, I mean, the, excuse me, the Northern oh. part of, of Guatemala. And it's just incredibly rural. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, American 1980s country music blasting. <laughs> it's, it's predominantly, uh, uh, ancestral Maha, uh, Maya people, and it, it's just different. So then we we went closer to Belize City, which Belize City has a very high crime rate, one, one of the highest in the world just per capita of the population. I, I, I mean, Belize's population, I believe, is just north of like 200,000. I mean, it's it's insane how... So we were staying with uh, a well world-renowned National Geographic uh, film uh, producer wow. and... And he was in his late 70s, and he's lived in Belize for 30 years. Hmm. 30 years. We stayed with him at kind of what was basically a reposition, uh, re, uh, uh, redesigned uh, film studio there. And they did a lot of stuff when they had to do films and stuff where they you know, kept the animals. as one of the best experiences. We found out we were the last people to stay with him alive. Um, he uh, was murdered, uh, like oh, stabbed wow. like viciously i mean 14 times or something like that um and you know we've I, i've tried to catch up with the case um i had my own preconceived things you know he was just uh, he was just a i mean just one of those people that you just connected with instantly i mean he drove us to the airport he didn't have to do that i mean yeah. we we're staying but you know he said he at one time you know and he was kind of one of those i think everyone has a grandpa story yeah. uh, like him and not to respect his kind of he was you know a younger you're a guy in his early 70s in that. But I, I remember one time where he by chance found some like escaping criminals uh-huh. and everyone was scared to report on him. And, and he's like, ah, I'm just going to do it. You know, but I think this was really a fluke thing where like, oh, well, they're, you know, I, I think I heard there's some they must be wealthy because they're, you know, some international people live for here for 30 years. And they're, I, you know, and I, I don't know if we're ever going to know. I, I saw they got caught and prosecuted, trialed. Um, but that story, but I mean that I never felt unsafe for that, but what I kind of want to lean that to, which I think Sarah can take that off of is obviously that's an insane thing to happen when, you know, then you go back and you tell your family that. And I was saddened to hear that that was kind of a reason for some of my media. Well, that's why you never travel, you know? And I, and I, I, I've been a big component to all my, some of my younger cousins are like little younger brothers and sisters to me. And I said, if there's one thing that you should do, doesn't even matter what your major is in college. That is the best opportunity to travel and just gain those experiences. And I and I just it's it saddens me that you know there's just this preconceived notion in the states, especially I think in the Midwest, where I mean even to the sense like to go to the coasts, you know, yeah, like you right. know Chicago, just, even. yeah, Chicago, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's, I mean, the 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 state of the world is there's bad things that happen everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I will, I would love to go back to Belize again. I don't feel, you know, again, you keep that watchful eye, and there's things that you just have to be smart on. Mm-hmm. But you know, you can't prescribe an unfortunate circumstance to the state of an entire nation. I, you know, Sarah, Sarah uh, I know you had points on that well, too. Well, also, so. like, we're yeah. all statistically trained, and so we know yeah. that mm-hmm. those are probably anomalies. You know, they're yeah. on the tails of the distribution curve. We know all of yeah. that. But mm-hmm. magnitude matters when it scares. Well, we also took, like, you know, behavioral. We studied behaviors too. And mm-hmm. so, like, we know that when something huge happens like that, 
that sticks with you more and you don't think about like that this is a statistical anomaly mm-hmm. because like people probably can think that i know when my cousins came to visit me here in in the states they came from south korea and they're like hey like uh if i because they were gonna do a road trip and they're mm. like well we always hear about the how great an american road trip is so they <laughs> landed in california and they were gonna drive to minnesota so they were doing that oh and they legit texted me before they came to california they're like if a police officer stops us, what should we do? Because we don't want to get shot. Mm. <laughs> well, they yeah. ask me that. No, I mean, that is a serious, yeah. But I mean, I yeah. think it's funny. Some of, some of my friends think America is incredibly dangerous. Right. You know, it's, so yeah. it's all perspective. Yeah. No, people in my village in Tanzania, they often asked me, well, there was the 2016 election was happening while oh, I was abroad. That's when and, I was in New Zealand. And so oh, it, was, wow. it was so interesting. I was getting most of my news from BBC, so... European. So good news. <laughs> you weren't going to Fox? What are you doing, Sarah? So, um, right, like a British news station. And I would say that they had a different perspective comparative to if I would have gotten my news from the seats here. But it was just so interesting. They didn't, people in my community didn't understand how Trump won because uh, Hillary Clinton won the general election. And so they always ask me, you don't have a real democracy, right? Because <laughs> Trump didn't, Trump won, but he didn't win. And oh, so I was trying to explain oh, the yeah. electoral college to everyone. Good luck with just, that. Oh my God. It was Can you so, explain that to me? It was so confusing. <laughs> I was so good. Right. It's like, <laughs> as a person with a master's of public policy, I should be able to explain that. But it was very difficult, especially in Swahili. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what the words are. I don't like, know. Well, our founding fathers <laughs> thought this was going to happen. So. Right. I was like, a select group of people voted, and they voted for Trump. <laughs> so Trump is our president. But, yeah, and then people in my community, they had smartphones, right? Everyone, 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 has, everyone a has a smartphone. I'm so glad you Worldwide. said that. Because two-thirds of the most poor population yes, have access have a smartphone. To, oh. to not just a phone, a, 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 smart, a smartphone. some sort of smartphone. Yes, yeah. What is the internet connection to that smartphone? You have... A just like 4G? Like Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you have a SIM card, and then you... The minutes and the data, per se, yeah. are... You buy them ahead of time, and it's like a prepaid mm-hmm. system. Okay. So you can go to any shop and get minutes yeah. or data. data. Right. You say data, I say data. <laughs> data, data. <laughs> Same thing. Um, and you you can just, you buy it there, and then they put it onto your phone number. Yep. And then you can just use it. But people would watch YouTube videos all the time, oh, and yeah. they would watch absurd YouTube videos. And... They, one time, one of my teachers came to me and they're like, Sarah, why do people in America smash TVs? Because <laughs> like they the, watched a YouTube that, video That's so funny. That was 2016. There was that, that YouTube thing where people are just breaking yes! stuff. So uh, I was like, that's... Not what we do. That's ridiculous. No, <laughs> an average person does not smash their TV. And then, to them too, it was crazy because like a TV is so expensive and yeah. having a TV means that you're middle to upper class and so they're like i can't believe you're smashing a tv (laughs) but i'm so glad you brought up that point that they have smartphones and they have like like internet infrastructure Mm -hmm. because i think i'm i felt i fall into that trap as like an american when you think about i'm going to this developing country i'm like 
Well, like you, you're probably walking on unpaved roads, and like there's no smartphones and all of that, so they're they're getting information. Oh, that, so that's yeah. so funny. So when I where I work in Peru, yeah, is Iquitos is is the largest city in the world that does not have external roads infrastructure to connect it. So mm-hmm. if you're in Lima, for instance, you cannot drive to Iquitos. Okay, you have to fly or go up the Amazon. Okay, so from there, I then took you have to take a boat up the Amazon for about just over two hours wow. so incredibly rural but we the um Sukasari community has partnership with a um a former peace uh peace corps volunteer who then started an eco lodge that caters mm-hmm. to like researchers and stuff and they have wi-fi ca- capabilities so i was oh, in one wow. of the most rural areas yeah. and i have you know 4g it's interesting the, the world the world's wi-fi is better too they treat it like a utilities approach and oh, like sure. us in yes. like the u.s we have that kind of monopoly thing where like i mm-hmm. i think i've had better reception almost everywhere <laughs> than you know than the states sometimes yeah. honestly yeah but i want to go back to something min was saying earlier um just sort of this preconceived notion that people have and they go to a developing nation when I went to Liberia, I researched so much what to expect there. So when I went there, I didn't have any culture shock. I knew what was there. I knew what to expect. I saw pictures online. I did so much research that when I got there, I was like, yep, this is what I expected. But when I went to Tanzania, I had reverse culture shock. I was like, skyscrapers? What? <laughs> oh, wow. And yeah. Because t- Liberia is like one of the poorest nations of the world so it is more of a stereotypical third world country whereas in tanzania there's dar salaam that's a major hub for boats and ships that come Mm -hmm. in and and imports and exports etc so of course they have skyscrapers they have roads they have Mm -hmm. formal bus systems and i just didn't do my research going in because i was bad and I had some biases and I mm-hmm. expected it to be roughly the same as Liberia, which was really bad in retrospect. But but yeah. I don't think anyone would blame me for having those biases either because like when you watch TV at yeah. 2 a.m. and the Sarah McLaughlin mm-hmm. commercial comes on and yeah. just like oh, on dirt roads. I hate that commercial yes. so much. It's like, such a trigger with the dogs, right? Yeah. Like, poverty like, porn at its best. Oh, yeah. Poverty oh, porn. And it's like you hear like, oh, you could feed children for 10 cents a day. You're like, how could anybody live off of 10? So that's like, that's like <laughs> how we're conditioned and that's... Yeah what we project onto those developing nations. Mm-hmm. And so like when when you, I'm sure like when you say like oh I'm going over there people are like well good luck have fun like right. stay healthy. Yeah, don't don't forget to eat. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like yeah. to me like you're like wait they have even me as and I try to think like try to think more open-mindedly and all of that. So you're like mm-hmm. wait they had cell phones. Even I had paused there. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a huge shift and it's just like for me too like I I go to South Korea and like they're clearly like I think even Americans know like they're they're ahead of us. I remember I went there in oh, 2007 absolutely. for the first <laughs> time oh, yeah. for the first time because my parents were like, well, we got to take our kids back to South Korea <laughs> so they can see it. So 2007 was the first time I went there. Um, and our family grew up so that we had no opportunity to ever take the whole family there until much later in our lives. Um, and I remember my cousin showed me this phone where they had video like chat. And this is in 2007. And I came back and that phone was in the first Iron Man movie. And my friend oh, next to wow. me was like, dude, Iron Man has like in the future, they have phones like that. And I was like, hold on a second here. I saw that phone a year ago. My cousin was using it. <laughs> it was so bizarre. Yeah. Oh we have that phone now. I yeah. remember I, I remember when I was in Poland for a conference. Yeah. Um, and when, you know, you think of Eastern Europe, you think, well, you know, you think you think of some tiered thing in our Western thing. 
everywhere had debit cards, which you just you just hover above. Yes. Which never, oh. I mean, I still is not common. Now we have the chip cards, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I have seen the hover thing just a few places. Is it? Yeah. It's like, but this was, yeah, it's it's very slow. How long ago was that? That was last year. Okay. That was last year, like almost this time exactly. And we're just adopting yeah, that. And we're just, yeah. yeah. But Europe, and they had it for a couple. Yeah. See? Yeah. Europe had chips before us. Oh, by far. Yeah. And I remember a friend of mine uh, went to Europe and people wouldn't accept her card because it didn't have a chip. Yeah. <sighs> As they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, this was like 2012 or something. Oh, but yeah. I didn't have a chip then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who had a chip card then? Right. So I think we didn't get them. Chip readers, I remember exactly when the mm-hmm. U.S. got them because I was just leaving for Tanzania and I, my car didn't have a chip on it, but I know that other people had chips on their card and I would see people use the chip readers and they were just coming to Target, etc. And when I came back from Tanzania, I didn't know how to use it. And so I would put the chip in and take it out like you would slide oh, a card. <laughs> That's and funny. It was, yeah, and so I, and so then finally I would like I was watching someone else. And I was like, okay, put it in and leave <laughs> it there. Put the chip in. Okay, take it out. It's like you went to the future. I don't know. <laughs> but I I do want to like sort of get rid. I want to help try to get rid of that idea where I think when Americans look at the other parts of the world, it's like, oh well, they're gonna catch up to what we do one day. And just like so many things, right. like we're behind. We're behind. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, see, my so my mom's retired, mm-hmm. and and my dad's probably getting close. And I've been trying to get them to go to Europe or awesome. to you know mm-hmm. I I gave up long ago of my mom coming visit me in Peru, uh-huh. even though like the the eco facility there is is phenomenal, and there's ones closer to Igatos. It's a little it's less quote unquote rough in it as in that kind of degree. But like, I mean, I don't know, but my, my parents, you know, being kind of the, the boomer generation just mm. have a preconceived notion that they just wouldn't enjoy that as much. And I, I got back from Katowice, stereotypical coal country, Poland, mm-hmm. and it was amazing shopping, which my yeah. mom loved. amazing like culture, <laughs> amazing like drinks and amazing fun, actual historic tourist things to do. Yeah. No, a little bit of diss on America. I mean, what's the oldest, the oldest <laughs> oh, building in America yes. is like, did we look that up one time? I think we did, Sarah. I think we did. It was like 16, uh, no, it was like a 15 building that's like barely, yeah. you know, that's like every building in Hitler, every, right. you know. Well, right. I, I did a tour of ancient mosques in Tanzania and it was crazy because some of them were thousands Ooh, of wow. years old. And I'm like, Psh. people go talk about history in America and there are like hundreds of Hun- years Can old. you believe this? This was actually, this was built 80 years ago. I mean, this is this is a historical landmark <laughs> here. The, and then meanwhile, everyone's like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> don't tear it down. Europe laughs. I do want to loop back to one other aspect of safety. But when you were talking sure. about, you took a trip, like a two hour trip up the Amazon River. Yeah. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Can you, what is, what does that feel like? Also, describe the boat for us. I'm fascinated. Uh, so, so, I so, can't move beyond. I, I yeah. can't move yeah. past this if we don't talk about it. <laughs> so, I mean, they have a real. There's just this beautiful kind of connection. I think you know. I've seen my prior kind of conception of going into just ecotourism was I thought it was a little bit you know ex- exploitation a little mm. bit. Yeah. I, it there can is be. there's yeah there's from some phenomenal ecotourism when it comes to things like that. So they have this really great kind of relationship with the Sukasari, the Mahuna people of uh, three villages there who have just a terrible I mean, we don't have to get into that but just their history from miners to you mm. know uh colonial expansion things like that just terribly uh just 
well, but anywho, um, <laughs> and but you know you have this this really great ecotourism network, some great NGOs and some education to you know bring students and researchers in there, and just a great relationship. So this the Eco Lodge kind of provides a lot of these you know just basic speedboats, you know. So it really it was really quite uh, um, similar to what you you know see on the Mississippi, I suppose, cool. you know. But it was yeah. it was it was a water taxi in that sense, you know. Um, but you know, I fell asleep, but you know, there's pink river dolphins out there and stuff. Aww. And uh, you know, when we were going between Sukasari, it's about a 15 minute, um, so it's really close. We took canoes and stuff, and you know, it just rained sometimes. And you know, they'd have, you know, we adapted, just used, you know, a little thing there. So it was, it was very, uh, very efficient, I would say. That's so cool. not, not like as uh, insane as you might expect. You know, yeah. it was very utilitarian. It was very. Good. Purposeful, yeah. Did you get seasick ever? No, no, I never did. I never did. There's just, uh, I mean, we were out, we went out looking for dolphins and stuff and, you know, snakes everywhere and uh, things like that. Uh, I remember, and that was the same in Guyana, too, um, is when I was there in 2014. Yeah, 2014 yeah, in Guyana. Dolphins? Well, not dolphins, but they have, the same, they have the same boats. But instead of dolphins, they have like, like, 11 foot Cayman crocodiles everywhere. Oh, and that's a little sure. unnerving. The dolphins yeah. are nice. You know, you're not scared of a dolphin, right? right. Uh-huh. When there's a Cayman crocodile, oh we, we actually helped like tag them and stuff. That was a little, <gasps> that was a little unnerving. Oh <laughs> I've only ever seen a crocodile once in my life and it was so far away that I was like, okay. Yeah, it, gets, it gets a little weird. <laughs> I, I can when, do this. <laughs> yeah. When you see them. And I hope like the wildlife, I, I don't know if we're going to talk about that, but like, just, oh I mean, you get you get used to things here. I mean, like oh. people, you know, I've had friends that like love squirrels, and like squirrels are cool, right? I mean, but then when you suddenly just, you know, when you're in Peru, it's just, you know, monkeys, you know, just everywhere, oh, you know, cool. like treat them like, but you know, like they're just like, ah, oh, they're just monkeys, you know. Yep. I mean, like they're just they're yeah, a nuisance. They're, they're, they're a nuisance. They're, they're, they're such a nuisance. They bang on everything. Yeah, yeah. They would you know. come onto my roof and like stop in the middle of the night and scare me awake. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So the, the the boat ride was. Pleasant, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, and there's, I and I'm, I mean, I got, I love wildlife. You know, I'm a big bird watcher. I try yeah. to attempt to be. So, you know, waking up early and seeing just, I mean, a harpy eagles like uh, is the largest eagle mm-hmm. in, uh, in in the world, and its talon is bigger than uh, like a human hand. Yeah. So like it's, I mean, it can pick up like a small deer. Like I mean, oh, it's my, just. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, they are. Yeah, I mean, and then you have the in Guyana. There's this arapaima, which it's a fish that's. Bigger than than this, even if you straightened out the little curved desk we're at. Yeah, um, I mean, just crazy, crazy stuff. That's I mean, that's, like and she five and I know, feet. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, as an American, I feel slightly offended that you found a cooler eagle than the bald eagle. Yeah, well, you know, I don't think the I love a I love a good bald eagle, right? But they're they're nothing compared to some of the eagles out there. Yeah. Okay, I have a really quick funny story about animals. Hear. Okay, so one of my Peace Corps friends was attacked by an elephant. Um, yeah, so she was on like a vacation in Zambia and they were canoeing and they stopped for a break along the Zambezi River. And so when they stopped out for their break, they got out and walked around and the elephant was a wild elephant that saw her and then it just charged. Oh. It like picked her up from its tusks. Oh, and it, one oh. of the tusks went through her butt. And and then it like threw her back on the ground. Wait, ha- threw her butt like it. it like that's how she went through her butt. Pierced. Like she has a hole. Well, she had she has a- two butt holes. Yeah, it went through. She's um, a, before we make jokes. She's good now. She's good oh, now. Okay. Yes, thank you. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. She's, good <laughs> <now>. <laughs> she's alive. Oh. But they 
they were on a canoe trip, right? And they were on the Zambezi River. And so they had to wait for her to stop bleeding. Otherwise, the crocodiles would smell it and come for them. I'm that, scared just listening to that story. That yeah, is, she was airlifted to South Africa, but and everything was oh. fine. But it was this. She called me one day and she was like, "Sarah, before I tell you this story, I want to let you know that I'm okay and don't <laughs> freak out." I was like, "No one should start their story by don't freak out." Oh, oh yeah, that's insane. I mean, but I mean, just that. I mean, that, yeah. that's something we don't have. Is like you need that respect for nature. Now, okay, yeah. we're gonna let you. We're gonna let you. Uh, you know, work out the, you know, you might have a new <laughs> orifice. Yes. But um, yes. but we're going to let the, we're gonna let it taken care of because, you know, crocodiles. I thought you were going to say hippos. I, I'm a little oh, bit scared hi- of hippos. Yeah. A little hippos bit scared are like hippos. the most dangerous animal. That's yeah. what I hear, too. So, is this true? Yeah. yeah. Okay. When I, territorial. I, I went to Zambia and Zimbabwe, I went to Victoria Falls, and I remember saying that I was at a party and I was like, oh, I'm just going to walk back to my Airbnb. Like, it's not that far. And there were these guys outside, and they were saying, "Don't walk home." And I just thought they you were, brushed it off. I brushed like, it off because you I was thought like, you were going to get proposed for marriage. I, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and I was just like, "Whatever." Like I'm a strong female. Yeah. I can walk home. Whatever. And then there was this one guy who was just so persistent, and he was like, "No, you don't understand. There are hippos who will attack you." And I was like, "What?" <sighs> lead with that. Lead with that next yes. time. Yes. You know, if, I just thought they were trying to ask me for money, and mm-hmm. I was just trying to be like, no, 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 I don't. I'm not going to give you money. I'm just going to keep walking. I know where I'm going. You yep. don't need to give me directions. Safety, going back to safety. safety. That's what they teach you, hippos. right? Just keep going, strong head. And then they're like, no, hippos. hippos. They'll eat you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's one takeaway we want for the audience here. Hippos are dangerous. <laughs> hippos are dangerous. They are very dangerous. And. I- don't walk alone at night in Victoria Falls. Yes. Okay, so I want to shift back to safety here. I just have so many notes on my sheet right now, and I just feel like the pressure cooker like building up <laughs> on all of them. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, too, because I know in the show notes we talked about how at the end of the episode, I was going to do this like linearly, where when you come back to the States, mm. what is yeah. that process like? But one thing that we wanted to talk about is like when you talk to your family about your experience and their perception of safety about the places that you went to, like what what does that look like? Do you just tell them everything or does that scare them and make that conversation less valuable? Yeah. So actually, I'm very afraid to say anything negative mm. about mm-hmm. my experience or any safety concern that I ever had. I didn't have very many, to be honest. But mm-hmm. if I ever had a safety concern, I wouldn't tell my mom about it because I was afraid that she would be so worried Mm-hmm. Or she would say, come home, come home. Which, by the way, is the worst thing you can say to a Peace Corps volunteer, if anyone listening mm. knows of one. That's the absolute worst thing you can say to them is come home. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, I think for a few different reasons. Um, first, they chose to become a Peace Corps volunteer knowing what it meant to leave. And if they didn't know what that meant, they were probably thinking of coming home and they will make that decision on their own. But having external pressure to come home just sort of influences your decision Mm -hmm. so much more. I think people forget how much of an influence family is in their lives. And by especially if you have multiple people telling you to come home, Mm -hmm. maybe maybe your mom says it every once in a while Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if multiple people are telling you to come home, you sort of feel that you're you start to question what you're doing when you probably fully made a decision 
mm-hmm. right away yeah. and knowing what was going to happen. That's huge. Yeah, how about you, Tyler? Was there anything like, I can't really tell my family about this. There, there's been some stuff I... <laughs> And I, w- I won't say yes. just because I, you know, I don't, I, I plan on having my, my parents try to listen to this, but, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, I, and don't worry, mom, not to, not to scare you on that. It's nothing too bad. Right. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I do, I want to paint this picture because I think one of the most important things, and it's weird because this was facilitated by my parents. Mm-hmm. I, I, my parents are the ones that wanted and supported my travel, but at the same time, I think it evolved into something that's more than this like tourist persona, which I don't mean that in the negative sense of, you know, tourism can have that negative thing. You are visiting a culture, but I think tourism is, is this thing where there's this finite time period that you're there and you are definitely a guest Mm -hmm. to, to the culture. And I think when you get more immersive experiences, you are still that guest, but you're able to just really embrace those things that change you. And I know my travels have been something that has changed my outlook. I mean, I wouldn't be in the degree, in the, I mean, in the program that I was or, or the work that I do if it wasn't for those experiences. So I feel like I have this need and power that like I need to build up like how, because I can't articulate sometimes in words at how like neat those experiences are. And I'm sure... Sarah, maybe you feel the same way, but like it's it's more than just the you know I'm a big as we already with the eagles and stuff. I, I'm a big I'm a big uh, animal guy, so I you know go off on some of that. Yeah, you know, especially down in the tropics. But like it's more so just like being there and just learning from. Yeah, yeah. I will say getting back to safety, I did a really good job, I think, of educating my parents right away mm. about what it meant to live in a Muslim village, and that I constantly express that mom these are people feeding me these are people who are my friends they're my family while you're not here they take on that Mm -hmm. supportive caretaking role while you do it emotionally from minnesota so these are not people to be afraid of yeah i will say Mm -hmm. that she also did her best to educate the people around her but my mom also got a lot of comments about me living in a Muslim village, I got some comments from some aunts who disagreed with where I was living and how could I possibly live Mm. in a Muslim village because they had this perceived notion of what a Muslim was Mm. because there was such a rise of ISIS at the time. Yeah. And And it skipped the helping thing like that. It was even just how, how dare you? That's that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. It was more like, how could you go there and help Muslims? Or right. was it? Yes. Oh, it was that. Yes. Wow. Not like, I feel, I, I fear for your safety, Sarah, because you're Well, in- they also feared for my safety. Oh, it, was okay. it was both. Yeah, it was both. But it was sort of like, how could you go and help them? But it, mm. I just hate the word them, too, mm-hmm. when you're talking about Muslims, because it's, it's such a mm. negative yeah. condensation that you're putting, you know, yes. a large group of the world into a them category, a which bothers me. Yeah. And means and insinuates opposite, which right exactly. Yeah, and just like that, everything you said makes total sense, and this is just sort of the reality of a post nine eleven world. Like just Mm -hmm. saying Muslim Mm -hmm. was is going to incite some feelings. So yeah, for sure. Also, before I want to loop back to sort of how the twenty sixteen election affected you guys um, while you were there, but also like were you were you also gone during the election, Tyler? You were in New Zealand. You said I I was in New Zealand for. No, but I was for like a portion of okay. like the a good like the primaries and things like that. I mean that I think Trump was became the number one primary wise in New Zealand. Okay, things like that. So I wanna I wanna talk more about how the twenty sixteen election plays into all of this. But I remember really early on in our conversation, I was thinking I had the 
either advantage or disadvantage of looking Korean and going to Korea. Mm-hmm. You guys didn't have that. How did that change <laughs> your, your guys' experience? It's like again, like w- there's so much. There's so many intersections here too. Like especially for you, yeah. also having the wrinkle of being a female. Yeah. How did that I- I- impact your guys' experience? There's a power dynamic for sure. I, you walk into any. Did place. it work to your advantage that that you guys were white? You guys are white. So, at first, I would say it worked to my advantage when I was still figuring things out. I could, if I, for whatever reason, didn't understand or was offended someone mildly Mm. enough that they could brush it off as, oh, she just doesn't know. She's this white woman. Mm -hmm. I think the longer I was there, that immunity sort of went away. So if I happened to offend someone, even though I might not have known it, they're like, oh, she should have known. Mm-hmm. Um, but the power dynamic is definitely still there. Mm-hmm. And I know some of those forces are hard to articulate on, too, because like even just in a, an American context, you mm-hmm. go to a meeting where a lot of different people come in. I mean, there's meetings where like everyone's trying to talk. And mm-hmm. I just feel like this woman across from me has made two good points. And now every time she tries to talk, someone is cutting her off. Mm-hmm. You know, little things like that where... It just It's just so normal. It's hard mm-hmm. to articulate on. Yeah. I will say that I definitely tried to use my white privilege and my power in a productive way whenever mm. I could. So if I heard that there was something going on in the community, I would definitely raise it to a, a leader who might have, as you said, brushed off the woman who might have said it earlier. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, this wasn't my idea, but this mm-hmm. is what I'm hearing mm-hmm. in the community yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, use it to your advantage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so. I mean, and that's international development work. It's oh, just, yeah. I mean, this is this is the key to how do you appropriately. I mean, and we we could go into a long discussion on just you know it's funder developed, funder run, mm. you know, and it's mm-hmm. not community driven and things. But you know, I was I was listening to some you know uh, a very reputable international development NGO nonprofit you know operating. But, I, you know, I remember just uh, anecdotally kind of mentioning that, well, you know, we try to get people on the ground, you know, and it's trying to get local. But it took them forever to kind of realize that uh, when they're operating a well, it was a well service, that they should have shifted their time from eight thir- the openings of the well to be 830. Uh, it was 830 to 930 when it should have been 730 to 830 because the prep time for everyone to get ready for school and oh, get the wow. and get the water that it was it was incredibly hard. It took them a long time because there's that, you know, you don't complain. You know, that culture thing is you don't complain about things that are are a service as a gift, you know? So mm. like it's it's half of that reading between the lines and then that authority perspective when a lot of people are working abroad, especially in NGOs or yeah. like, you know, things yeah. like that. It's difficult. Let's talk about this because if, if we run out of time and we don't talk about this dichotomy between what the funders want and what the community mm. wants, I think I'm going to have a big regret. Can we start talking about? I don't, I don't even know what that begins to look like. So when we say funders, what does that mean? So when you go over as a part of Peace Corps, are we talking about the Peace Corps program? I, I'm not so much talking about the Peace Corps program because I I don't want to put Peace Corps on a pedestal because it definitely has its its downsides. But Peace Corps volunteers by nature integrate into the community and do whatever the community needs to an extent Mm -hmm. to as much as you can possibly do in two years, which feels like a long time, but is actually not that much time. So, I mean, if you're thinking about a construction project, 
if a Peace Corps volunteer is successfully going to do that, they need to start that year one. Mm -hmm. They need to figure that out and get the money and the resources and the contractor all lined up in year one so that it can be done by year two. So I don't really think very much construction projects or things like that happen in Peace Corps. But when I say what the funder wants versus what the community wants, I'm really thinking of foundations Uh or U.S. government who gives out a lot of money in international development. Not as much money as you would think. 1% of the federal budget, by the way. (laughs) 1%. That was not misspoken. But they determine what they fund, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So at the federal U.S. government level, they're deciding that they're going to give money to some sort of development. They're going to give money to HIV. The community or some sort of NGO then applies for HIV money in order to disperse HIV projects locally. Now, HIV is clearly a problem if the funder, you know, wants to fund a project on HIV. But it's not always a problem that the community feels is a problem. Mm-hmm. Or is that's, priority number is one. Is priority number that, one. That's key. That's and so key. let's say a community has a problem with HIV, but really they have a problem with water or food security. And so people are constantly leaving the village to go get these things and coming back with them. But when they're leaving, they're contracting HIV. But what if they never had to leave? Right. Mm-hmm. Then would they have an HIV problem? Maybe not. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think Sarah hit it on. I mean, there's two different things here that kind of come up on. Is is one is these grants are using the levels of funding. Is there some international, whether it's multinational with between governments, you know, think mm-hmm. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yep. And then there's these large scale NGOs, which are in, almost entirely based and run in Western, whether it's like a London or New York or DC mm-hmm. ranch. And Save then the children, yep, yep. And then there's the small ones, which are usually locally run, you know. And what happens is these funders are usually ones at the very highest tier, so they don't know the community needs, and they. Um, so that's number one. Number two is the rigid structure of how grants work. Yep. Is I mean, this is one of my biggest things. Whether it's like nonprofit, just management in and operational things, is it's not treated like venture capital ever. Grants are to be used for allocated specifically, you know, you you can't, there's no negotiable, you yeah. know, things on that. And because of that, and very little invest, like management, things like that, that lacks the sustainability. And then like Sarah beautifully kind of pointed out is, well, maybe HIV isn't the problem. I mean, yeah. like, like I, so I'm going to say, I love Rotary International. I love it. I, I think Rotary does a great things, but their big thing is they want to eradicate polio. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, and I'm not going to I'm not going to say getting rid of polio is is never a bad thing. Right. But when you go on that approach, don't don't you think when like dysentery, like, you know, food and waterborne things, those allocation of funds and things like that to have a roundabout way of affecting polio while helping a lot more people. But because of the the rigidness of it, you know, like, well, it has to be used for this and the evaluation that's the whole problem. And that's and that's a difficult thing with the industry, I, I feel, is just because it's too rigid and it's not as much community focus. It's getting better, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an, such an interesting tension because I don't have like that international development lens. So I, I don't yeah. think... I mean, we, we face some of the same, similar tensions here where, when some things are earmarked. Like, mm-hmm. well, that's not the problem that mm-hmm. we should be addressing. Mm-hmm. That we yeah. should, well, it's a, it's a symptom, but mm-hmm. we could address the cause of this. Right. Absolutely. And so, but also like when you, oh, go ahead. Uh, I will say funding specific illnesses sometimes bothers me. 
because when I was in Peace Corps, cholera was such a big problem. Mm. And there every rainy season for about four months, there would be a cholera outbreak and it would be mm. really bad. And they would shut down street food, mm. which is basically any sort of restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that most funders want to fund like chronic problems like polio, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. HIV. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily think of maybe common illnesses that come and go mm-hmm. like waterborne illnesses. So when you were talking about HIV, you're saying like, well, yes, it's a, it's a problem, but also like how they have to go over distances and that's how they sort of actually contract HIV. Is, does that act like a loophole? That, uh, can, could you be like... I was just using that as an example. Uh, okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so I, I mean, I guess, in my mind. I guess uh, a level up, <laughs> I'm just wondering like, are those funds earmarked so tightly they're like, you can only use this for medicine. Or like, could you be like, well, actually, this project over here also addresses HIV. And I, they kind of do it that I, way. I, I think in like a perfect world, and I think grants are getting better about that. But yeah. the enemy is time. Mm. Is that you That's need right. to, and when it's those funded record, the evaluatory like measures mm-hmm. for how well something is done is so ingrained in that specific thing. Where I wish, and this is why some grants are getting better, you could say, well, this turns and then you you need to have adaptive evaluation to make sure it's working, but it's not sustainable. So you have, uh, you know, two years to measure an impact, which may not take, it may take longer than two years. And I mean, that's, that's the issue. And like what Sarah said. With like, you know, HIV, some people moving, it's just, it, it it's not as adaptive, those evaluatory mm. metrics to keep funding coming. Because once you're, you know, you, you live on having to get that funding. I want to say too, along that point, there are smaller NGOs who just don't have the resources mm-hmm. to adapt their evaluation plans so fluidly to Mm-mm. accommodate funder problems yes. or, or not problems, but funder demands, right, I would right. say. It definitely takes a certain level NGO or nonprofit to be able to adapt mm-hmm. to funder requests and for an evaluation plan. And this is not us saying like, oh, well, if only we got rid of evaluations because no. I think we all appreciate that. No, we no, are. No, you I, need definitely, them. I definitely you appreciate need evaluation. evaluation. Absolutely. Yeah. And we want to know like if the work we did actually made an impact. Like we want that to happen. But also putting an evaluation on something does push you a certain direction. Like, I need to see these outcomes. Yeah. And so, like, mm-hmm. do you play to the evaluation or do you play to, like, what you hear from the community and, like, the issues that you see? I mean, I, I feel like that tension could happen, too. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a really cool uh, certified B Corp here, small organization called Ecotone Analytics that they worked in impact analysis mm-hmm. and things like that. And, that's, and that is because that changing shift of a lot of the big NGOs, and this is maybe less international development, but just as much, is you just historically get the same amount. Maybe you've just been receiving for you know the past 20 years, you just always get $200,000. It didn't matter what you were doing with it. You just always built mm-hmm. that relationship. And now, I mean, that's the good thing of valuation is you're putting your money where your mouth is, but we still have a next stage to go to because the the quantitative side can only say something. We need to have the qualitative yes. side. Yeah. We need to speak onto there's always context matters. And that's where it's huge international development mm-hmm. because you're trying to streamline these programs yeah. and things like that. But every single community, honestly, every single family has different things. And that's the constant struggle with everything from public health to yeah. pharmaceutical infrastructure. 
I want to say I'm a grant writer. And so what you just said about how the funder gives you $200,000 no matter what because you've developed that relationship, that's super important. And that's how innovation, flexibility, and resource changing can happen mm-hmm. at an organization. And, mm-hmm. and that's how you can have the flexibility to create an evaluation. So that's sort of a positive side of that. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a hyper-competitive environment as international development and you maybe don't have a relationship yet, Mm. that's where you need to have the perfect evaluation plan to, in order to accommodate a prospective funder's demand, you need to have the perfect activity that will have a community impact that will also have the voices of the community because that's also something. So it's so funny because funders want... The community involved, they want you to be in the community, but But. they want certain outcomes. Yes. And if you don't deliver on those certain outcomes. You you clearly messed up. I don't know. Yeah, you clearly, you know, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's the kind of. The paradox mm-hmm. it really of, is. of this, yeah, but we yeah. can move on. Absolutely. I'm really glad you brought up that qual-quant uh, tension, too, because I think the way that we're trained, we all took stats and uh, yeah. e- e- econometrics mm-hmm. and all of that. So we understand that, you know, everyone wants, they're like, oh, where's the numbers? Show me the stats. Show me show me the facts. And just like, yes, we have we have those. But like the way we learned it, it's just like so there's so much story in between the numbers that you just don't have unless you have like a qualitative story attached to it. And so like you were saying earlier, it's just like you, you just got to have both. Stories, what's raised money. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's funny. I, a professor I very highly respect at, at the Humphrey School does not, it's not that he doesn't necessarily believe in the merits of qualitative, yeah. but he's, he's in the quantitative side. I would say he sometimes puts a qualitative thing on like what that captures, but I think there is you do need both and you need to have them responsibly because you can't just have a story sometimes mm-hmm. because the stories can be very individual too. You need you need to have it, it connected and that's I mean that's the value of mixed methods. You yes. really really need that. Yeah. yeah. Really glad you b- brought that up. And I know where the I feel the timer clicking here <laughs> but also it wasn't in the, it wasn't I don't think it was something that you guys brought up unless this is what you meant by empowerment. But I really mm. wanted to ask you guys, because since I don't have that international lens, and this kind of speaks to earlier where you're saying, like, when people look at, like, a Muslim country and the hijab, like, so many Americans just have, a like, a, a slanted, pers- at minimum, at least a slanted mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah. I wanted to ask you guys this, like, the white savior complex. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. is that... Is that actually a thing? Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> and then yeah. how do we combat yeah. that? And like, what does that look like where you can go to a thing and you can sort of mitigate the white savior complex and still like be white and help and be from a Western country? Like, how do you mix all of those ingredients together? Great, great, great yeah, question. Great question. I like to think of the white savior complex as a scale of gray. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... And I've said this before, but I honestly think that most Peace Corps volunteers have a white savior complex, including myself. But it's like, where do you fall on that scale of gray? Okay, so mm-hmm. are are you going to Peace Corps because you truly want to help people? But why do you truly want to help people? Are you truly wanting to help people because you have power and you have white privilege? or And you want to sort of balance that power out by uplifting other people 
or our this is for your Instagram account. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you laugh, but uh, yeah, yeah. Oh my god. I, I mean, less Peace Corps, but, but the volunteer. A hundred percent. Or are you going to travel for your Instagram? I mean, not for mm. your Instagram, but are you going to travel? That was honestly, I heard that from so many Peace Corps volunteers, and I'm not saying that that's bad because it's not. It's it's getting back to our point that Tyler made earlier that people should travel, people yes. should experience the world. So I'm not saying that Peace Corps volunteers who travel are bad. I'm just saying that that's a reason and mm-hmm. that uh, that may or may not fall somewhere else on the scale of white savior complex. Right. But also within this conversation, I don't think personal enrichment should be excluded. Yeah. Like if it is like no. I'm going over here because I really believe in this mission and I want to help all these people out. But also I feel like I'm going to learn so much about myself mm-hmm. and I'm going to grow as a person. Great. Yeah. Everyone wins. Right. Yeah. yeah. I really just think that white savior complex is white privilege, but how you're using white privilege. Right. Mm. So are you using white privilege to point out to other people who might not see biases? Like, as I was mentioning earlier about hijab, like I've pointed that out to so many people and, and I, I'm not saying that I'm perfect. I definitely have room to grow on race and white privilege and and white savior complex. But the fact that that surprises people, that people or that Muslim individuals wear a hijab voluntarily, that should not be surprising to people, Mm. but it is. Yeah. Yeah. Any opinions on this, Tyler? Well, you know, I I think it's so funny. So in my program, there's 13 of us, 14 and then the 13. um, And there were four of us that were uh, five of us from America. Okay. Uh, so we're, you know, the minority of, you know, getting that. And I uh, talking to my close friend and other white male in this, the only other white Cameron. male in our program. Yes. Um, and, oh, nice. and getting in this, and we talked about, I mean, gosh, we have to be there. There is so much just inherently of, you know, and this isn't a bad thing, but there is a little bit of a white savior complex in, in the sense that you're just in this field, and I, but and I, I'm, and I'm not saying yeah. that necessarily in the negative sense no. of that, Agreed. but yeah. but you need you're a little bit naive in the sense that you think you can make a difference, mm. and that you yeah. should be the one making the difference, wow. 100%. which is I, I've tried to mature on this, and this is I think everyone in and maybe Sarah too in some of these classes, you go through a little bit of a dark place, thinking like, man, everything's just just fucked up yeah. a little bit, and everything yeah. is just. Like, why Why are you doing this? You know, why are we doing this? And then I think you do turn a corner where you say, I think everyone has a role to play and you need to evolve on your things, on your values, your beliefs and how just operational capacity of how to do things. And if you can, if that can help impact just how other people approach and you keep the community in mind and things like that, that slow progress is what makes a difference. Yeah. And I, I mean, and like Sarah said, I mean, it's a constantly, you're never good enough. You know, you, mm-hmm. you know, just like mm-hmm. everything you always, and it, you know, your dying day when you're a hundred, you know, you're never perfect in this, you know, kind of yeah. spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a lot in there. And thank you for sharing that too. Like I, when you were saying that too, I kind of got goosebumps a little bit too, but there's a lot packed in there. Also there's, I just think there's, somebody said it like if if not us who that makes me feel bad saying that because it's like i just just don't want to put like what we do on a pedestal but also like historically we have been the people that have exploited other areas so deeply like how is how are other areas supposed to develop when we go in there and 
stomp on any oh, sort yeah. of development yeah. and Absolutely. exploit that area. Yep. So if yeah. in that sense, if not us, who's going to do it? Right. And, and I think especially to that point, if you look at Africa and all the areas that I traveled to and that I lived in, there was a sense of colonialism. You could feel it in the air. You mm-hmm. could see it on the ground. You could see it with sidewalks mm-hmm. in some cities, but no sidewalks in other cities. Mm-hmm. So clearly that city for whatever reason, wasn't colonized the way that other cities in Tanzania mm-hmm. were. But, and then people look at you as if you're supposed to have all the answers and mm-hmm. you're supposed to know everything because colonists came in and they're like, we know things. We are right. You're not right. We are. And, and it's, it's really bad. It's, it, it creates communities that are, are impacted by trauma because mm-hmm. they're constantly told they're wrong or they were used as slaves, etc. Yeah, like so, that exertion of power to yes. condition them over time too. Right, it's just yeah. like especially it's just like, well, look mm-hmm. at us. We have yeah. all these ships or whatever. Yeah. Obviously we know what we're doing. Right. But just like when I find like little gems and like sort of a, a, a I don't want to say fringe culture, but something that's not a dominant theme for us and you like look at something and you're like, Oh my God, if I could adopt that in my life, that's like a huge mm-hmm. and beautiful thing. It's mm-hmm. like the first, one of those first times like in elementary school when I learned something like that was when I learned boxers, some boxers have taken ballet lessons because it helps with their footwork so much. Yeah. Like how does that, how does that mesh? Mm-hmm. And so like, I've had the advantage of growing up in a Korean household, but in, in an American setting. Mm-hmm. So there's so many times where like, I went to my friend's house and like I saw the dad helping the mom cook. That never happened, especially like in an old school Korean <laughs> cultural setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like that we would host parties and mm-hmm. were, all the guys would be in the living room until like dinner is actually served and all the women would be in the kitchen. And I went over to my friend's house and I was like, your dad knows how to cook. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, he helps all the, he like he likes cooking more than my mom. I'm like, that's weird. But I was just like in fifth grade thinking like, oh, OK, mm-hmm. this makes sense. And you adopt little things like that. So just mm-hmm. like it's it bums me out that we're not we don't look to other cultures to mm-hmm. learn lessons or fill gaps that we have in our own development. I well, agree. Well, and that's just is a beautiful imprint of, you know, of trying to break away from that monoculture. You know, mm-hmm. if you yeah. if you spend, you know, everything in suburban America, households just the same. <laughs> but in your, you know, you, you were able to go to a different house and see how things that had an impact. You know, and that kind of is a beautiful full circle is why it is important to travel, you know, mm-hmm. responsibly and not, you know, there's there are things like that. But that gives you those perspectives, which you're able to. Uh, for instance, my I was always the, the traveler yeah. in my family. And even oh. though I think ironically now, I, I don't feel that way anymore. And I'll tell you why. I, my, my younger cousin is getting his undergrad in Beijing. Oh, wow. And he has traveled all over Europe now. I think he just got back from Thailand. And now he is the world traveler in that. But I'm just so proud of... Of that, that maybe maybe me talking about that importance left. If that had even a one yes. percent thing on on him wanting to take that risk or anything, then I mean that that makes me proud. Yeah. So all the way. Uh, before we close out this conversation, um, I kind of want to move to the final piece of this. When you go through that experience and you come back home, mm-hmm. how do you reintegrate yourself when you come home? Was it hard for you guys? Oh, ironically, the two months I spent in Liberia, it was harder to transition after that than the two years I spent in wow. Tanzania. Wow. And it mostly had to do with the fact that I wasn't expecting to leave Liberia. We were pulled because mm-hmm. of the Ebola crisis. 
So I sort of had picked up and uprooted my life as if I was leaving America for two years. And then I came back in two months and I felt kind of silly for having a going away party Mm -hmm. and like (laughs) saying goodbye to everyone. And Mm -hmm. I felt just really silly. But I don't know. It was it was difficult in just that. There were a lot of things that I looked at as really trivial, as if people would complain about a certain problem. And I'm like, that's not a real problem. That's Absolutely. Hashtag first world problem or mm. whatever. And I sort of had like a bad attitude for a while. And it took me a while to get over that. And for me to realize, no, for that person, this is truly a problem. And this yeah. is a barrier in their life. And where am I to judge what someone's problems are. That's really foolish of me to say that. You are so nice. But I'm not like that. <laughs> I, you know, when I come back and I, like, I learned a lesson from abroad <laughs> and I hear, I see someone at Starbucks complaining, you know, like, oh, yeah. they spelled my name wrong. I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. How about That's you, so Tyler? Funny. Did you have anything that was just like, I came home and just, it just took me a while to get back to what I was before I left. I think just the... Uh, when I was in Belize specifically, I mean, every, everything runs on, you know, a different... I think we talked about time earlier. Yeah. I think that rigidness was just a little bit of an annoyance. Mm-hmm. And then I was mad at myself for falling into a lot of just American indulgences, you know, mm-hmm. where, you yeah. know, I lost a lot of weight when I was, you know, and I think part of that is, you know, when you're just active, you're not eating processed foods or anything like that. Yep. And um, you're just more active and then you just have a go-getter, you know, thing. And then suddenly, you know, one of the things... Sometimes, sometimes missed was falling into you know like shows or binge very, watching. Binge watching. Speak for yourself. I watched a lot of TV. Yeah, well, and well, I did. Uh, but no, and I did. I did too. But it was at like night hour. You know, like it was. It was when you had that allocation to do it. I guess if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Where and then you went to bed early. You know, and then oh, suddenly because yeah. you needed to. You know, because things operated around that. Now, you know, every you know in America, you just you know you can just do you know if you're not if you're not at a, a job at that point or something yeah. like that, you know, you can fall into those tropes. But uh, I, I remember Belize. The, the only one thing I was I was thankful getting back to the states was is they only have one brewery in, in Belize <laughs> where they control all the beers. So I had to choose between a Belican stout yep. and a Belican lager. Yeah, um, there was a couple other ones, sometimes special treats, but. That That's was funny. that was one thing I was happy when I. When got you back. say there was like a like you lost this go getter mentality, is that you when you're down there because you're in a project and all of that? Are you yeah. the go getter or is the culture there? Are you being influenced by the culture there because it is a go getter mentality, um, or is it just you? No, I, I would say I, you know I think there's it was made of broadly. I think that'd be too broad to say the culture was because I think there's microcosms that I think the organization was that I was with. Um, we didn't get much of a break working um, for a lot of that. So I think that was part of it, just the project orientedness. But when I've lived abroad too, I think it's it's part of the nature of maybe just you're, you are constantly doing something <laughs> and it's so different and stimulating <laughs> that then you just feel and reassure yourself that, well, I can just be a little more lax now and stuff. And and you and you're just disappointed in yourself for getting away from what's a really healthy yeah. tendency. I'll end with this. What is the next place you guys really want to travel to? I'm going to Italy in February. I'm excited by myself. Ooh. I really wanted a solo international trip. I've had that international trip itch. But after that's awesome. that, probably Thailand. Ooh. Oh. How, how long are you going to be in Italy? 10 days. Oh, that's so cool. I yeah, I, I like the solo trip too. I, well, you guys like the solo trip? Uh, really? yeah, it's, I, it's a different experience. I, I love a solo trip. Why? 
I mean, I'm sure there's like more freedom and yeah. flexibility, but freedom I, need, flexibility. I need to talk to someone. Mm. Well, yeah. I, so I was in Lima for like 16 hours only, stayed mm-hmm. at a hostel. I made like five friends from all over, from Denmark, Australia, um, Chile. And that, that was because, you know, you, you're on there and you just make these connections. And I still talk to them today. I mean, literally knew them for like 10 hours probably at that point. Yeah. I think that's the joy of a solo trip. Yeah, that's wow. the key, though. You have to stay in a hostel. Yes. Because that's where all independent travelers okay. technically or probably go. They're not going to a hotel with American food. No, <laughs> no. So I, I really want to make it. To China, see my cousin. I think that that'd be a, a big, Ooh, yeah. a big because I've never explored that or somewhere in uh, or like Kenya, Malawi. I, I'd love to visit mm-hmm. too. So just get a little different perspective than where I've been. Go visit yeah. Rachel in Albania. Oh yes, Rachel, oh. In Rachel Albania. is another guest on the podcast. Yeah, she's been on too. So. That would be fun. That would be fun too. That's I'd awesome. Definitely visit. Too too many to to, to pay. Yeah. I know. Man, I know. where would you go? Yeah. I don't know. I haven't been to Europe yet, and so I was going to go last year, but my grandmother had a heat stroke because it was like mm. the hottest summer ever in Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, that little climate yeah. change thing that's mm-hmm. happening. Oh, just um, a little is it? thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's real. Uh. <laughs> There's like 2% of scientists that don't think that it's real. Uh, 2%. But, <laughs> but I, I, so I spent the money to go visit because my, my aunt texted us, and she was mm. like, I don't know if grandma's going to make it. I well, remember that. That's good yeah. of you to do that. Yeah, and I hadn't been back you for had like a seven Korean years. Hair when he came back. Oh man, yeah. I told my cousin, like, just give me the most Korean haircut, and he did a good job. So <laughs> he looked like a K pop star. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. So, yeah, I want to go to Europe, I think, to narrow it down, maybe more like Scandinavian countries, because just like yeah. you see them on like the happiness yeah. ratings. Every- well, your wallet will hurt, though. Yes. They're very that. expensive. Yes, that's whatever. That's fine. I just like, I just want to go to like, like a pub. And just like try yeah. to strike up conversations with people and, and like just, I don't know, somehow like just get a grain of like what does your daily life look like and just what do you think about Americans? Like for how people perceive Americans is so fascinating to me. It's usually negative. Yeah. But yes. yes. Well, it's surprising how sometimes positive it can be though, unfortunately. Oh. But it's it's for weird things I see sometimes. Yeah. That was a big thing in New Zealand. It's just, mm-hmm. but... In Kenya, I ran into these Canadians at the airport, and they were like, we hate being called American. <laughs> I know. I know. It's a shame. It's just, but I want to thank you guys for coming on. Please do come back on. We're going to do try to do more election episodes in 2020, Ooh. and I would love to hear you guys' opinions on things. So, for sure. Yeah. Well, for thank sure. you again. Do you guys have any plugs or like where people can find you? Uh, my Instagram is at SGNovak. I do have some Peace Corps on there, some stuff on there from my earlier time, if you wanted to check that out. I also have a blog. Uh, it's Sarah's Journey in Liberia. Oh, great. That's also my blog in Liberia and Tanzania. I just didn't change the name. But if you want to learn more about my Peace Corps experience. Yeah, that'd be great. Can people contact you, Tyler? Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, on Twitter at Tyler M. Vogel. Yep. Unfortunately, I changed that when I was young for whatever <laughs> reasons. I had like 08000 thinking that would be a good idea. And then my uh, Instagram is TylerVogel8. Great. Yeah. So if anybody's thinking like, oh, I'm going to do international development, they could reach out to you guys that yeah. way then. Absolutely. Always love to reach out to Peace Corps friends. Good, good. Well, thank you for listening. You can connect with the Quality Under Pressure podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Quality Under Pressure. We're on Twitter at QUP Podcast, and you can send us an email at qualityunderpressure at gmail.com.